0: They shoot the shit. They shoot, they shoot the shit. Shoot, 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 shit, shit, shit. shit. Shooting the shit with Chippa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Shooting the Shit with Chippa, one of the thousands of different things that I do on the internet because, I don't know, it's fun. Um, Before I get to my very special guest, I'd like to thank my $15 or more patrons. They are Mason, Christopher Finnick. Patricia Chipman, Hugh K. Campbell Jr., Alex Peregrine, Kevin CV, Mike the Gatherer, Tyler Freshcorn, Mark Price, and collaborating online. And also thank my newest patron, Sean Zoltec. Thank you all very much for contributing and help make this a lot easier to produce because time is money. And even though I do this for fun, I have a wife, two kids, a full-time job. And so if there isn't a little bit of something coming in to recoup the time I spend, then it's just a whole lot of time I'm spending away from my family. And that also isn't great for mental health or just for my relationship in general. So thank you all very much. Today's episode is brought to you by the Pumpkin Copter Cast. It is a show run by a good friend of mine, Tyler Gorman. He also runs Gotta Recap Them All, which he's watching through the entirety of the Pokemon anime and films and recapping each episode. You should really check out Tyler's stuff and go over to his Patreon as well. Um, He's a great guy and he needs more people watching his stuff because he's a teacher, so he's out of work right now. Um, And with that, I'll get to this week's guest, um, a friend from five hours in the future as of the time of recording of this way over the pond. Good, sir. Introduce yourself to the peoples.
1: Hello, listeners. Uh, My name is Matt Crowley. I am the co-creator and host of uh, So Much Pathos. I run the channel that the house that Jack built and we do uh, video essay content and uh sometimes uh whenever i can i make short films but by and large we do so much pathos um which is li- like i just said video essay uh content you know like there are because there's so few of us on the internet yeah no no one is making video essay content for nah, podcasts. Nah. just you and me yeah yeah, yeah it. it's just you know we got in on the ground floor on that one it's just you know <laughs> i'm playing how's it going chris Oh man, I'm doing
0: all right. I am. Uh, I'm
1: on my lunch break.
0: Um, it's one in the afternoon. Um, work is chaos. Um, but it's okay. Cause we're trying, I have to be here. I don't have to be here, but I'm choosing to be here four hours a day in person just to help the people that are unable to work from home have work to do. So nice. that's, yeah, we're, yeah, it's hard, but again, there's, We're a hundred and twenty-ish person company, and less than twenty people are showing up, and we're all staying very separate. Anyone that shares an office, they split us all apart. So it's it's we're all wearing masks, and the sanitizer everywhere, and they're cleaning every night, and so it's it's going really well
1: for the most part. Uh, How about
0: you? How are you?
1: Well, my uh, day uh, job—I've been officially furloughed, so um, I've and I've been at um, in home for probably about i think about two months month and a half at this point so how does, um, how does that work um oh, because
0: if, if people didn't guess from where i said you're in the united kingdom where exactly are you
1: um, uh, i'm in a i'm in the kent region which is the southeast
0: okay i i know i know the geography of the area but i just so is the kent region are you in a, a small town in a city like how does it
1: it's a, a small town with so um yeah kent is uh it's it's known as the garden uh region the garden of england um because it's like largely forestation um and uh I, I live in a town uh that is uh probably one of the closer to london yeah it's basically it's just um it's yeah it's it's the southeast uh, where i live is just this kind of uh relatively small area i think we're kind of sandwiched between two kind of very kind of busy areas and stuff
0: so how does how does furloughed in in the uk work is there an unemployment type of thing that you're able to get or are you just yes
1: so to to the best of my knowledge how it's working at the moment is that the government is paying us uh basically to stay home like people who have been furloughed and um I, i don't know how much it is and i don't know uh why because because i have not yet been paid i'm gonna be paid in about like a i think a week's time um so but i don't i'm still waiting to know exactly how much that is at the time of this recording interesting but but they're basically saying it's going to be uh the update i got from my work basically said that it's going to be at least 80% of what my average pay is, which again is still kind of a bit up in the air because a lot of people at the place that I work are on zero hours contracts. So it's kind of like, it's a kind of questionable. Interesting.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, we had the same kind of thing, you know, they were, it was all up in the air about what would happen and they, they passed it and ours came in, but it's right now a one-time thing. So if this goes on, if this goes on for another two or three months, there's no additional stuff on the table for anyone getting anything more. And so obviously I, I have the you know luck of being able to still work, but my, you know, my wife is a stay at home mom. We were under the, you know, combined house income and have two children. So anything is helpful, right? And it was a decent amount of help, but you know, they're doing like a $600 a month boost in unemployment, which is great for people who are unemployed. But then you get the half of the country going, well, that's just going to make more people want to go on unemployment and abuse the system. And it's just like, oh, can we just can we just help people and not worry about how people are going to abuse it right now, please?
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's kind of like, I mean, like, it's almost as if there's like some sort of crisis going on right now. And just.
0: (sighs) No, no, I have have an interesting question. And again, this is I try not to make my shows go too far political and I like them to be happy, but it's just the way of the world right now. And I like knowing the difference between what I have going on here and what I have going on from the nation that, you know, my people escaped from. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if you you didn't know, I'm directly descended from a Mayflower passenger. I found this out recently. And um, so outside of a native American, I'm as old as you can go back in this country, which I think is really fun. Um, that's ab- but, absolutely but, fascinating. But unlike the United Kingdom, that's all of three hundred years. Where I went over there, went to London, and like the outside towns, and it's like, oh, this wall was built. Is is that only three numbers A.D.? What the crap? You know what I mean? Like that's so we we you know our old buildings are from the sixteen hundreds, right? That's what we got. <laughs> but um, anyway, it's just weird, right? Because I, I I'm in the New England area, so there's so much history here this is where everything happens so it's it's just wild to go somewhere where the history goes back thousands of years prior to my you know mile marker for history right it's very different but um so the the mayflower there's a guy the only guy that's really written about that aren't the really well-known two pilgrims that like you know, got them onto the ship because they were basically steerage. So they were just listed as, you know, person number one, two, three, and four in the logs. This guy is mentioned by name because he went out on the top decks during a storm and fell off. And they had to (laughs) sleep. And the guy who saved him got court-martialed because it put the crew in danger. Oh my God. So this guy, his name was John Howland. And there's I think nine thousand people living in the world right now that are directly descended from him. So he had a lot of kids, <laughs> and my funny. mother and my mother connected us. Like I was watching the the Charlie Brown, the Peanuts. Um, uh, do you? Does that a worldwide thing or is that just the United oh, States? Peanuts. Thing? <laughs> okay. Yeah, Didn't yeah. Make- i I just don't know anymore and i so rarely get to talk to people overseas and i don't want to go on and on about like marshmallow fluff and have people roll their eyes and go what is he talking
1: about (laughs) a lot of i think a lot of um american imports are within like the last um 10 or 15 years are really hitting uh england i'm not sure about the the rest of europe but uh like i remember back when i was in secondary school which would have been like uh, 2008 oh sorry high school for our american listeners um i remember when uh back in i think it's like 2007 2008 where oreos first landed uh yeah. first oreo I was like "Ooh, this is nice one of those american things
0: oh. uh-huh. it's like us going over and having um what's the the chocolate cadbury, cadbury no.
1: yes and
0: yeah, that's the one where it's like oh wow it actually is way different over here all right yeah um no, but i uh, oh, I don't So yeah, the Peanuts does a Thanksgiving special, uh and they have John Howland just fell off the boat, and I'm watching this after my mother found this out, and like realizing for the first time they're calling out the guy I'm related to <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> that's but just... uh, yeah no, oh, so, so it, it's funny, but you know, I just you know getting a view of how things work over there is is helpful for me because you know we have people protesting being kept safe do do i mean i know that you you had brexit and all that fun stuff that we you know look at from a thousand miles away and laugh at and roll our eyes but you know um is is that going on over there do you have protests in the streets of people claiming that they should be allowed to go outside and get sick if they want to
1: um i've not checked the news today but as far as i'm aware no but i feel like but I feel like if I if I if I were to check like right now and find out that they are, then I would feel very very stupid. <laughs> so like, no, but right. as far as I'm aware, no.
0: We have Famous the you last know words. We have the leader of our country tweeting things out saying like liberate states, like like it's some sort of war. But then like... also coming around and going, I'm sorry, no, I, I meant to say that I think George is ridiculous
1: for trying to open now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just i sort of think about like the the sort of modern political discourse and i just kind of think like we're in i mean like like hot take we're in really weird and strange and fascinating times right now um and like i don't know i just kind of like whenever i think about like when i scroll through my twitter feed and just see like what the the newest things that you know uh Donald Trump is saying, and it's kind of—it like, oh, yeah. makes me smash my head into a wall until my brain bleeds. Because you've and seen the—you've seen the whole thing with the the bleach, right? Oh, the yeah. oh yeah. Oh no!
0: Believe me, I've seen it, and I try to avoid it, and I've still seen it. Oh. <laughs> it just—and uh, it—it—it's it, hard, right? Because I mean, I've. All all political figures have a level of laughableness to things they do and say. It it comes with the territory, but
1: Yeah, because I mean like 'cause politicians have like a rough time of time anyway because they necessarily are scrutinized by, you know, the media and by other politicians, right? But like exactly. it just seems like it just seems like particularly fascinating when you have someone like Donald Trump who is um in a position of great power and influence. And, like, being scrutinized very publicly in a way that, like, he deserves to be, right? Because, like, that's, you know, that's, you know, he's the president. It comes with a job, exactly. Yeah, it it comes with a job. And, like, just watching him essentially behave like, you know, a babbling child is, like, it's, like, kind of, like, scary, funny. Like, the way that he's, you know...
0: And, and it's the point that the, the point that my brain keeps going to is you know, we've so much it always says history is destined to repeat itself and parables and stories and things that are passed down are all there to stop people from repeating mistakes, but information comes out so quickly now and has come out so quickly in the last, you know, 20, 30 years that it's a wag the dog situation where it's like, okay, we've known and we know that no matter what we hear or what we say, there's a show being put on in one way or another. Doesn't matter if the information's factual or not; it's meant. There's there's a crowd control thing going on. That's the point of having someone in charge. Is there supposed to go there and be like, hey, let me try to mitigate your concern over this thing? It, it's we we've understood that, but now it's to the point where, like you ended up with shows like the daily show, which came to the realization that in through making fun, making a joke out of stuff, we're actually getting more people to pay attention to the news by being a bit farcical and funny about it. It's like, how can anyone like really, you know, a politician like Donald Trump is, would be a good thing if they were, you know, pulling the wool down you know from around everybody's eyes and going look this whole thing's a big joke and that might be actually at the end of the day what this idiot is doing but i don't know it breaks my brain (laughs) you know i mean what's really true and driving it and i'm not a conspiracy theorist i just i know that the world is just a weird place and i'd rather have a um What's what's the word? I'd rather have someone representing my country that at least is attempting to have some sort of decorum about them, even
1: if they're lying straight to my face. You know. I mean, it's. I mean, it's. It is interesting because it's kind of like. I don't know if this is. I think this is. Thinking on it now, it's probably like a general political thing, but like it seems to be like a uniquely American thing of the idea of like the american showman spectacle you know in terms yeah. of like i mean in in terms of like um i mean like i think you've really hit the nail on the head there what you just described where the role of president is kind of almost like a kind of pt barnum like ringmaster figure yes. you know in a sense i don't i don't mean to trivialize american politics but like it's you could kind of that that does seem to, to me to be like a very uniquely american thing i mean it's something that like um i think that's also kind of the case in uh england a little bit about what's happened with the conservative party and with figures like he who right. shall not be named it's just like i think it's it, it's something that i think is maybe a symptom of popular populism where like yeah um i'm not a I'm just to be I'm just going to say out, out loud I'm not a political theoretician or anything like that i I have a casual interest in philosophy um so I'm probably going to do a Jordan Peterson and mangle a bunch of very technical words uh oh <laughs> but like but like I I'm, I I do think about this stuff and I think that it's probably it's it's probably got something to do with like this particular recent strain of like Populism in terms of like these kind of ringleaders presenting this kind of us versus themness.
0: Yes, yes. It, it's such a shame to see because I, I, and again I, I'm gonna try to pull us out of the political side here only because um one it's super interesting to talk about, but people are getting battered so much with it these days. But um, I have someone at work who immigrated to the United States from um, a Caribbean island, and they have only been here since like right before high school. And so their vision of the United States is very much the late 80s, early 90s, push to political correctness and suppression of that populism into kind of a, hey, all of you people in the KKK and all that, just get out of here. And it was a push to much more liberal, especially in the media, um, view of politics in the United States. So for him... A presidency like Barack Obama's was like the the pinnacle of us moving towards that. So as soon as this the Donald Trump presidency was coming, he'd come around. Don't worry, this is never gonna happen. He's like, I know the United States too well. The United States I live in now would not let this happen. And he was completely shattered because it brought on this perception of I thought we fixed this, I thought we got rid of this. And it's sadly kind of like um, and again, not all of the people because There are some perfectly good people that just have some middle of the road conservative views that vote their part. And that pisses me off that people are blinded by that, but they're not necessarily the problem all the time. It's that lying dormant, like Mordor kind of thing going on that you, you give a little bit of a sounding board. You give a little bit of an, an inch inches to, you know, Nazis and stuff like that that are just looking to be screaming out again and they're going to explode and fill the airwaves
1: oh yeah totally if you if you give them an inch they will take a mile
0: and it it's amazing to me i mean it was it's a culture shock to everyone when you realize that wow the majority of people have this weird populist thing As soon as you make it us versus them, as soon as you make it, I don't care how bad off it is for me, as long as this person I like less is worse off. And Mm. that's scary to me.
1: I mean, it's basically like, um, I mean, um, um, I I think Ollie Thorne, who does um, Philosophy Tube, put it like his definition of populism. He put it so succinctly, which is that like populism being like politicking to do with, you know, the people versus the elites and what matters is how you define those two categories like so i because the truth is like anyone can do populism where well, anyone can do populism anyone can present us versus them depending on who us and them are my name is Gebetto funkin once you stumble knackle timber shivers at your service i'm looking for some friends of mine the many pennies the many pennies them
0: I know we've been really busy, but I think that all we need to do is just tackle the next thing on this 24-item to-do list and we'll be fine. Someone bring me some food. Also, my flask is empty. I need a refill.
1: Nobody panic. I may have lost several scorpions. I said nobody panic. Check out this new skin patch on my cloak, guys. Guys? You know, I might be looking for someone else.
0: I don't blame you. Adventure Incorporated, a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition actual play adventure podcast. New episodes every Monday. Find us at AdventureIncPod.com. dot com. The harsh reality of it is that things just suck out there right now, and the point of people like you, us, and us and you. Oh boy, wait a minute! So all the people in That's... both of our oh no, <laughs> me, me and you getting together and talking is to one have a connection with someone because we're like like we were talking about before we started recording. There's like a crushing sort of um, you know just. Horrible feeling right now Even though there's no physical barrier Stopping you from breathing or going Outside it's there's there's a fear And a scaredness that we haven't Really had before you you equated It to being like the mist And that's yeah means the mist And that's a perfect segue into You had mentioned you do so much for pathos but Tell people a little bit about what that show Is that may have not heard it yet And we'll talk about we can Seg in by talking about Frank Darabont Because that's that'll be cool
1: Oh sure, man. Um, so so yeah. So so much pathos was a show. It well is a show that I co-created with Sam Lightwing, who was uh, writing the show for a long time and uh, has kind of like taken a step back. Um, and basically, the, the idea of what we what we do with it is we just we do movie analysis on basically just anything we find interesting. I know that's like super general, right? But like um the but basically like we you know we try and find new ways of looking at old movies or find new movies that are kind of you know weird and interesting or stuff like that at least that's what um me and sam have always tried to do with the show we did an episode on uh, the shawshank redemption and it's probably one of the most popular things i've um uh, i've ever done um just on the internet I'm like, I'm really blown away by the response by it, because what's been fascinating is how I've had like a bunch of people in the comments say like, Oh, I've never seen it that way before. And it's not sort of like, well, it's like, it's so obvious that it's about that. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of um, stuff regarding um, kind of like hope and a sense of like vu- mutual vulnerability and kind of like work like those kind of like, and, and like themes of systemic injustice, like, it was just so obvious to me that that's what the movie was about, you know, and it's so obvious to Sam as well. And I kind of, and the conclusion of that video, we basically came down as that. I I feel very strongly that people, that the audience for the Shawshank Redemption engage with that movie, perhaps not even with, Uh, This sense of like men being kind of trapped in their circumstances and a kind of sense of mutual vulnerability getting them out of it. You know, like I am I remember a British film critic, uh, Mark Kermode, was uh, talking about once he went to a screening of it in the Midwest or somewhere in, in the United States. And he described the experience of going to the Shawshank Redemption with that audience as being like akin to coming out of a church like a sermon or you know people feeling revitalized out after coming out of it and I remember hearing that anecdote and thinking there's thing to that you know
0: no absolutely and, and you you were hitting the nail on the head of of where shawshank is in this odd compartment of films that just like shawshank is a movie that on one side should be held on the highest pedestal of brilliant filmmaking, brilliant writing, brilliant acting. It's something there should be classes taught on and analyzed. This is like, you know, a film snobs, like pinnacle of great cinema that also speaks to so many people. And, And this is different from like a Star Wars or something like that that just has an entertainment value that speaks to a lot of people. The Shawshank hit a lot of people very, very, very deep. There's um, an emotional um, note there yeah and i don't even you know for me to say and and i don't want this to sound like an unintelligent person because that's not what i mean i mean people that don't even look at cinema and see anything cinematic about it that don't care about the structure the cinematography the directing the music the story just hits them in a way that i don't even think the filmmaker could even expect my father, um, I equate, who, who rest in peace is not with us anymore. Um, me and my brother equate him with a lot of our love of film, even though my father was a casual lover of film and that he just taped the stuff that was popular and went and saw the stuff that was popular. So he was the kind of guy that, would go, oh, well, everyone's going to see the Star Wars thing. I should go check it out. You know, that was about the level he saw films at, right? But he knew he liked them. But a movie like Shawshank, if it was on, he sat captivated. Like, mm-hmm. it's one of those movies that would not get turned off. And he'd be a sobbing mess by the end of it, you know? And things like that. And my father was an alcoholic. So I realized, you know, a movie like The Shining that I didn't see until I grew up is a horrible, horrible horror story of a movie for an alcoholic, Right. He, mm. there was something personal that that movie touched him on that you know Stephen King was thinking about when he wrote it because he went through his own issues with that that I didn't yeah yeah I didn't even see as a twelve year old so terrified by the scary part of this movie so I love a film like Shawshank that you you can sit in a room with a hundred people and have thirty of them never give a single um you know like Casablanca or anything like a second look you know, mm-hmm. but are captivated by everything about the Shawshank Redemption. Um, other films that fall into this, you, you know, uh, um, the other works of Frank Darabont, The Green Mile is another one
1: that, you know. The Green Mile is, again, that, that was one of those movies that I, I remember in the video I said is probably the better of the two movies. Like between, yeah. Shawshank, between Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile, The Green Mile is probably the better movie, but The Shawshank Redemption just seems to just work better like for what it is and, and don't get me wrong by the way i adore the green mile so yep. much like i mean it's a it's a long old trek but like it's one that i <laughs> you know like um but it's one that i like willingly take like that is just such an immaculately made movie um oh my so- god and it, and it also it, it becomes a question of like uh when watching that movie it becomes a question of kind of like titanic actually when uh you talk about it with other people it's like so when did you start crying <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, you know, like in titanic when did you start crying same with the green mile when did you start crying
0: oh my god i mean the first time i can't even remember because it was just like watching the movie through a stream of water but just thinking about the green mile makes me sad now. <laughs> oh <laughs> Green Mile and Shawshank are two very different stories with similar settings from the same writer and the same director that are very different looking and feeling in staged films and I love that about them that Green Mile doubles down on kind of the, the mystical Stephen King side of things whereas Shawshank is so wholly real until like, yeah. the nightmare imagery of the later scenes you know that it it's very amazing that a director, directors usually have a style that, you know, you know, there's a through line that it's like, okay, I'm going to make another Stephen King movie and better look and feel the same. And they're so inherently different as films.
1: It's one of those things where like in the case of Stephen King, like, um, and then what I'm about to say is going to sound really redundant, but like it is kind of worth saying, but like Stephen King is one of those guys who really gets why stories like exist like why we tell stories like the actual clarity of purpose and sense of focus like i mean sure you can there's i mean all right in a lot of stories there's like a certain power fantasy aspect like which is you know desirable like oh gosh if only if i were superman perhaps people wouldn't beat me up but that's not entirely the reason why people enjoy stories like he gets so clearly with such um focus and purpose that like there is like we can use these kind of, you know, fictional trappings to really connect with people in a kind of emotional and metaphorical level, and he gets that. So like like so, oh, just he's he's so good. He's just like he's such a great great storyteller, you know. He does a great job of taking you on on
0: a full journey too, where a lot of people would focus on just the power of fantasy or a lot of people would focus on just bringing your main character way down so they can come back up from it. And he mixes it in. It's like the characters all get put through a, a ringer often that a lot of authors and directors and storytellers would be afraid to let you see that side of their character. They'd be, if yeah. they have a, oh, they're afraid to let you see the flaws. If they have a villain, they're afraid to let you see the good parts and he he fully fleshes out things, and that's wild to me.
1: It's also one of the reasons why he's he's such a good horror writer is because he's willing to, like, really go there to, like, the dark bits of his own psyche. Like, we talked about the... Like, you mentioned The Shining a second ago, and, like, Shining, if you take it from, like, a metaphorical... And or even in, like, a... If you imagine it in a very personal kind of way, it's, like, it's actually a, it's such a fucking dark story because, like, he's talking about his own like uh you know his own no. alcoholism and his own kind of, yeah exactly like his own kind of personal battles and like this kind of like needs to satiate your own addiction versus the needs to like attack your children do you know what i mean like in that kind of you know add addiction rattled mind would do you know what i mean like that that's so like raw and id-like um A thing to to really deal with it's also one of those things that you can only really tell that as a horror story you know like he's someone who really gets why genre exists you know and how to use more more specifically how to use genre in such an effective way you know as as to create meaning and greater impact for why he's telling the story that he is telling in that way
0: and it's, it's absolutely wonderful when you can hook up with a director that gets him. Because Steve, Stephen King, I mean, they haven't not made Stephen King's books into movies, but they very rarely succeed. And um, it, it, it's amazing when you get someone like Darabont that just, you can adapt a story and not miss the point. Because it's impossible, if you wanted to film a whole Stephen King book, you'd need years. You know, you'd need a oh, night yeah nine part harry potter series just to cover the freaking dark tower right but uh, yeah but like darabont can adapt you know something like shawshank or green mile into a perfectly fitting two and a half three hour long movie but also adapt you know less than 10 pages of stephen king short story of the mist into a captivating two hour long horror flick and it just it amazes me same way with the shining and um, even though Stanley Kubrick took The Shining in a very different direction than King's book intended, the story—it's everybody's view when you think about it. everyone that's seen the movie. That's what they think of when they see The Shining. So to see Mike Flanagan adapt Doctor Sleep so brilliantly,
1: and then I still, we, have, I still what, haven't seen Doctor Sleep, by the way. So I won't blow. Have you read the book? Uh, no, but like, oh uh, I'm I'm desperate to 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 see the so, film.
0: So without blowing anything about Dr. Sleep, just to get you more amped to see it, what Mike Flanagan did, and Mike Flanagan and Frank Darabont are at the same level to me as being able to adapt Stephen King. Um, Flanagan did, well; he did The The Haunting of Hill House, which isn't Stephen King, but it might as well have been, which was just genius.
1: The and, early Jackson
0: story, yeah. Yeah, and he adapted Gerald's Game, which is another short that just, holy shit, did he go all up. That included the Stephen King sub. And have you seen
1: Gerald's Game? I, I, I not right. See, like, like I'm really bad with a lot of recent stuff, right? Because no, like, it's, okay. um,
0: it, it's okay. But you know, Stephen King often has stuff where you read it and you go, "Okay, I get why you put that in this book." There's no yeah. way you're that often because it involves kids and stuff. Because he's got that weird side. Something terrible happened to him as a kid that he is just writing all over his books. But um, there's a thing in there where I went, "Holy shit!" Not only did you film this scene. But the asshole, the perpetrator of the scene, it, he he works with um, Elliot from E.T. The kid who played Elliot in E.T. is in almost every right. Mike movie. And he, this guy that's just so lovable, he makes this villainous, wretched person that does this horrible act. And they put it on screen. And I went, are you kidding me? But it needs to be there. When you watch the story play out, it's kind of the linchpin for why everything is happening. So he had to do it but I just can't believe anyone sitting down and actually filming the scene because it's horrifying, but he gets that. So to get to Dr. Sleep and I read things in that book and I go, there is no way that's going to make it to the movie. And then I watched it and goes, and then it's there. And he did it again. Oh my God. Um, but what he did is the shining, the book and the shining, the movie are very different. He made Dr. Sleep a sequel to shining the movie but did this cool thing where he interwove stuff that Kubrick kept out of the original shining book into Dr. Sleep in the sequel to kind of bring it back and kind of merge them both.
1: Oh, that's quite fascinating.
0: So what it ended up doing is Stephen King said, Oh my God, you like you not only have made one of my favorite adaptations of any of my books, you fixed my feelings about the original shining, the
1: original Shining.
0: (laughs) And the third act of dr sleep is just a full-on recreation of the overlook he he brought in actors to play shelly duvall and play jack nicholson that nail it like no it's it's insane what he did in this film you have to see it um but just that that's kind of the the paralleling with darabont another thing i i really liked was um i liked how you did the uh the, the episode about that Joaquin Phoenix movie, um, what you would never really hear. Is that what you it was You would never called? really
1: hear, yeah.
0: And, and I loved how, my, my thing that struck me so much about that episode is you 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 were able to brilliantly do, a, I won't call it a takedown, but a, um, a look at Joker, which was so damn big at the time that you released that, and kind <laughs> of go, but instead of making an episode about here's why Joker sucks, which the whole internet, at least of people that are intelligent were doing, you were able to take that and turn it into a positive of look at like Joaquin Phoenix is a great actor and he's played a role very similar to this before. So instead of wasting your time talking about how much of a misstep this was, let's focus on this really positive thing instead. And I, I loved that misdirection that that episode was, I I really mean it like that, that because I had just seen the Joker and it, when I watched that and, I'm still so bummed about that movie. Not because I I think it was a terrible idea in and of itself the whole way through. But Phoenix is like, he at least seems to have been in a movie that was good and they forgot to film or write that movie. You know what I mean? Like anytime he's not speaking and he's just able to act, show trauma, show mental health issues, show the person it's like oh my god he gets it and then unfortunately the movie shows up and goes and now we're gonna have a monologue where he explains that he was just feeling (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: the funny thing is like even now i still haven't i still haven't seen uh the joaquin phoenix todd phillips joker and the reason why is just because every time i go to watch it i just think good lord this just sounds like the most insufferable piece of shit
0: and it's a bummer because right? you can watch it and go, okay, this perf- no one in it is bad. Everyone in it is good. The cinematography is good. The directing is good. Everything about the movie should culminate in something good, and it's just an insufferable, preachy mess. And yeah. it's a, and it's a bummer, right? Because it's like you want—I I want a movie when I go into it to at least entertain me. And that's the mm-hmm. thing: is it didn't even entertain me. It just made me go man, that movie really wanted me to think that it was good.
1: Mm. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like, um, oh, it's it's one of those things where like, um, as soon as I saw the trailer, I just kind of felt like, I, f- I feel like I'm trying, like, um, let me try and word this correctly. I think it, 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 when I saw the trailer, I remember looking at it and thinking, uh, immediately in my mind, thinking of both Taxi Driver and, Um, king of comedy and i remember thinking and i remember thinking like are you are you trying to like work me like almost like a kind of like a car salesman are you like working me right now and i kind of feel like i mean again this is me without actually having seen the movie and reading a lot of reviews about it it's just like a lot of a lot of the people who seem to respond really positively to that movie almost i kind of feel like I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to doubt the the sincerity. Of that you know, if you enjoyed the movie, great, you enjoyed the movie. I'm not going to take that away from you. There is a part of me that kind of feels like what the movie kind of felt to me from just the marketing. What it was trying to do is to try and give the audience like the sense memory of a of a movie that you, like people might already be familiar with. And it's one of the reasons why it kind of turned me off. It because I kind of felt like like you're trying really, really hard to do Taxi Driver and it's just kind of like, I'm sorry, like, I've seen Taxi Driver and I would rather you be you. That's kind of one of the reasons why, like, I don't know, just, it's like I say, every time I go to approach that movie to, like, watch it on the casual, it's just kind of like, it just, everything about it just makes me think, good lord, this just sounds so insufferable, like, kind of, like, super duper, like, dark self-serious joker movie it just like sounds like it just sounds like every single thing that i don't like about modern like superhero comics and like right
0: ugh. right and it, it's funny like even scorsese who you know doesn't have to prove anything to anyone anymore is usually pretty good about building up things he's involved in i guess yeah. without telling anyone he pulled off the project like 6 months before it released and they interviewed him and said, you know, what did you feel about Joker? He goes, haven't seen it. He goes, I've already seen the two movies of mine that it's trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: God.
0: It reminds me of another one of my favorite Martin Scorsese quotes, where again, it, it happens to come from a movie that I don't like very much that he made, um, called Gangs of New York. Have you seen Gangs of New York?
1: I have seen gangs of it. It's really it's not that great, is it? It's,
0: it, just, it, it, it's, it's a of... movie that I at least respect, even though I don't like it because there's a lot of artistry on display there. He went all out with that thing. I just didn't like it. But um on the set, he built these big sprawling sets to do these amazing tracking shots and did all these practical effects and everything. And he's really good buddies with George Lucas. This is very well known. And he's walking around with George Lucas and, you know, George is getting a set visit and he's telling him, going on and on about you could have done this in post and you could do all this green screen work because, you know, Lucas was working on the second Star Wars um, prequel at the time and he's okay. showing up all this cool stuff and I guess the quote says that Scorsese turned to a grip that they were walking with and right in front of Lucas, he's gone, has this guy seen the last movie he
1: made? <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Like, uh, Scorsese is just like, I mean, obviously, like, he's kind of gotten a little bit flack recently because of the whole Marvel yeah. thing, but like, um, but it's like, he's not, uh, I think the thing with Scorsese is that he's at an age and at a stage in his career where he just does not give a fuck. Like, and hey, it, he doesn't have to give a fuck either. If you, you know? can be
0: as old as you are and still working at the top of your game, more power to you, dude. And especially if you haven't, like, okay, so he shat on Marvel a little bit. At least he shat on a little Marvel. bit. Yeah. I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep this positive, but he did it in a, um, in an old curmudgeony, you know, I just don't get it kind of yeah. a way instead of in like a nasty rate. Like he didn't like go off on like a racist tirade about it. Like people uh. like Terry Gilliam have started doing, which is another guy I used to respect so much. <sighs>
1: Yeah, I mean, well, with Terry Gilliam, it's just one of those things where, like, it's kind of, old. it's very much like, obviously, I don't want to turn this political, but it's, it's, like, in the case of Gilliam, it's one of those things where, like, you know, old white person, you know, part of, you know, old white comedian, you know, still thinks he's edgy. Right. I mean, at least that's, at least that's kind of how I tend to think of it, you know. No, Um, it's true. It's true. But, I mean, I mean, with the Scorsese thing, I mean, like, um... What was I thinking? There was an um. There's been like really smart takes on the whole Miles Morales Marvel thing. Like your brother in particular did a particularly yep. great couple. I think it was a couple episodes he did, which yeah, I really yeah. liked. Um, my stance is like my stance on the on the Marvel thing is basically to say like, um, I I, I get very kind of uppity and suspicious of anyone who starts who gets to a certain point where they start talking about what isn't is what is not isn't cinema. Or yep. you know, because it's because you may as well be having the same conversation about like what is or isn't art. Do you know what I mean? It's yep. kind of like it's because those conversations are almost certainly almost always born out of uh someone not wanting to uh get into something or understand a certain type of person's sense of taste and therefore kind of want to, you know, like, an, or maybe acknowledge that, like, certain things are just a bit beyond them and, you know, kind of want it's to different. dismiss it. And then that ends up being kind of, like, multiplied in the case of Scorsese because, like, I mean, mm-hmm. Scorsese isn't a chump. Like, not only has he made, like, a bunch of, like, had an, a very prolific career and made, like, like incredible films but he's also kind of scholarly about filmmaking so it's one of those things where like my take is just to say like look filmmaking has existed for long before i i or martin scorsese was born and it's going to exist in whatever form long after he's dead so like it's kind of Whoever, no matter, who, and I would say the same thing for anyone who makes the argument about what can or cannot be cinema is like, it's just so it, it's kind of arrogant to just say that such and such a thing cannot be cinema, even if it's like, even if it does, even if it offends your, there, uh, yeah, even if it offends your sensibilities, you know, everything is like everything that you, everything that you treat like cinema is cinema, everything no, like I'm. I, I'm very kind of libertarian about this kind of thing. Everyone's valid, you know, Every and everything in cinema is basically valid, you know? No, like, when you start discrediting stuff,
0: People, you, you need to give people
1: the creative
0: playground and sandbox to succeed and fail on their own terms. And if you start saying that thing you're doing you can say it isn't marketable Fine, go on all day long But Scorsese isn't telling them what they can and can't sell He's not being yeah. their producer He's telling them what is or isn't art And that's way yeah. different um, Which is way it, di- yeah It's a bummer to me because knowing him It just came off in a conversation That was like, I don't like this thing So I'm just going to talk about it this way It's the fact he kept doubling down on it That yeah. really upset me Because this is the gentleman who made Hugo Have you yeah. seen Hugo? Hugo I I, Hugo. I sat in the theater going, "Oh my god, of course he's making a wonderful family film. I love this. This is so different. Like it looked like he was trying to ape like like um, a different filmmaker's style of filmmaking, and he did such a beautiful job at it. And he did then a when I
1: marvelous job with that.
0: And then I get to the third act and went, "Oh my God, this is a this this is a political statement about film preservation." Scorsese, I love you. You were able to meld that into this movie. That means children are going to see this mm-hmm. and get that get that ingrained in their head this is wonderful so to hear him kind of use his art form to remind people that some other stuff might be out there that also should be considered art that you should save makes it even worse that that same guy could just dump on an entire part of the art form and it falls into that cynical well i mean what does it matter if i make fun of marvel it's just disney anywhere and they're evil it's like i don't care who the production company is. If I like something and I like the people that made it, then I like it. Like I, yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm going to avoid stuff. Tom Cruise makes because I don't like his, you know, whole thing that he's pushing, but that's my personal decision. Yeah, if, if, much, I,
1: yeah. if I started
0: hating everything Disney made, we're basically not watching movies. Anymore. Yeah, you wouldn't, yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, it's like, um, i mean i've got two points to that i mean the first point that's really interesting is that like you also got to remember the context under which uh hugo came out which was like 2011 around the time of around the around the kind of the peak of the kind of uh you know 3d cinema revival where like you know where like uh we'd had like movies being re-released in 3d and like movies being post converted into 3d like i think immortals was post converted and so was like uh clash of the titans and and, like there were critics oh and like there were critics saying oh god what is it what is it with you know 3d cinema oh this is so terrible and then hugo comes out and he's a perfectly you know it's fucking awesome in you know even in 3d it's like boom he's gorgeous yeah
0: you know
1: so it's kinda of like I mean I mean, all right, the, the the two things aren't necessarily comparable, but it's just one of those things where like, um Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. It's just like that. just I think the context of like Hugo coming out in the kind of revivals of three D is kind of interesting. Like here's the what here's the 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 movie that comes out that kind of shows that hey, this stuff actually is kind of valid if you do it well. You right. Know.
0: It's interesting with Scorsese being a guy who obviously is trying to stay on the pinnacle of cinema. Like he, yeah. you know, he, he very he made a big statement by making a movie for Netflix. You know, the the folks like Steven Spielberg have been unable to agree with that being a good idea. You know, he he did all of that incredible um, de aging stuff with the cameras in The Irishman. That movie has more special effects shots than Avengers Endgame for Christ's sakes, right? Yeah. And it's it's just crazy that that guy in and, and i i'd like to think he's being misquoted but he just keeps doubling down on it and that makes me so sad
1: <laughs> it does man i mean it's 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 i mean it's just a kind of generally disappointing for me because like obviously scorsese is a guy who like wants to like he's always been kind of a uh, I, oh, I think it was kind of like a hip and cool filmmaker who's mm-hmm. constantly wants to stay relevant. Right. And it, and I don't even mean relevant in like the, you know, Hey, it's your granddad's trying to stay relevant by putting on a leather jacket and a backwards red cap. But I mean, <laughs> genuinely relevant, like Scorsese has always been a pretty relevant filmmaker in terms of the content that he's made and has been willing to adapt to the times. I think what Scorsese's, um, uh, I think his comments do kind of point out this kind of um, I think that his I do think that his comments do point out kind of the the wider issue of like, you know, the fact that, you know, more and more, you know, less and less movies are, you know, getting made and it's more and more money pooling into fewer and fewer hands, which is not a healthy, you know, position for the film economy to be in, you know. So I think that that's certainly valid, but like taking your frustrations out on Marvel specifically because do you see what I mean? So the so this issue is kind of like several kind of things kind of boun- bouncing into each other, some valid and some decidedly less valid. You know, and it's all just how it comes out, right? I mean, it's
0: you're you're absolutely right. It's it's the 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 union type guy, the the guy who's you know part of the Directors Guild, the screen. He's looking at all of these people losing money. It's the same type of argument for, you know, I'm sure he's one of the people that was probably strongly against, you know, people like Robert Rodriguez, you know, doing every single aspect of their film. That's why people like that get kicked out of the director's guild because they're, they're affecting the economy of making films, not just the artistic part of it. So looking at it as a producer, if he just chose his words a little bit better, I don't think anyone would be disagreeing with him. It's, it's the, Focusing it on a specific movie, I, I was thinking about this the same way people go with animation, right? Not every animated movie is a, is a freaking illumination film. Now, there's places for those. I love the fact that films like that can exist because children love them. Children should get something, too. And if people are trying to make something good, even if it's saccharine and all over the place and silly, that's fine. It's the fact that that movie can exist and Leica almost goes out of business every time they make a goddamn movie that pisses me off you know Yeah,
1: it's, it's kind of i mean it sucks but it's like again it's like it's symptomatic of a of um, of an unhealthy industry yeah, you know particularly absolutely. in recent times you know
0: so here, here's an interesting thing i i posed this with my brother the other night but we didn't get into it too too much but we're looking at the spectrum of film release and i know that um, UK and america is often very similar but i know things are staggered um do you have the same do you have AMC and everything over there what what are your cinemas in,
1: in so the UK? Um, england's um cinema tra- uh the uk's cinema chains are duh, 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 i know Odeon uh okay. Cine- uh um view and uh, some others that I'm just totally forgetting off the no, no,
0: of I <clears throat> looking at you know okay realistically every movie company right now if you look at the release date structure has basically said no movies are coming out till July like that pretty that's up. the current thing. But pretty July much, yeah. July's not far away anymore. Like in March, July seemed very far away, and in April, July does not seem very far away. So the question is, you got you know a couple big movies coming out in July, and then there's August. Everything is shifted to August. So August would used to be the dumping ground for like movies you weren't sure of, but you still it's thought they'd like, bring in the audience. Is now, now like everything. the month. So the the question I pose, and it's just it's a it's a thinking point, is if they really do still decide to release these movies, let's say cinemas open up the end of July. And August ends up being the shit, get stuff out there as quick as you can. We have a movie that was originally supposed to come out in August, the third Bill and Ted film, a second, yeah, third Bill and Ted film, which is riding on the nostalgic coattails And the fact that people love John Wick and Keanu Reeves is basically a God, as far as people are concerned, which I agree with mostly. He seems like an awesome dude, but that was originally in August release. So that was originally posed for the slot of, well, people will be done with the star Wars and Marvel movies. So we'll bring this out and we'll get a big crowd because there's nothing else. Now yeah. you've got like Disney dropping two or three movies in August. You guys. So if August really does happen the way that it does, does August then just, you know, cause people have muscle memory, right? Does yeah. August become the may next year? Does like everything shift? Like what's going to
1: happen? I mean, I don't really know. That's actually like, really interesting that you put it that way because like i mean the thing is is that everything's still kind of quite up in the air and i kind of yeah. <clears throat> there's a part of me that wants to say that in august i i don't f- there's a part of me that wants to say well it doesn't really matter because the there's a good chance that uh you know all the cinemas like would be just closed because that's just the only way that i can think of right you know right. so but i i I really don't know, That is, but that is uh, really, really interesting to consider. It's a big, because a
0: chicken, right? Because, I just think whatever month it is that cinemas reopen is going to be one, an absolute total cluster because oh, yeah. no matter what, no one's going to open the first cinema again and go, yeah, we're going to go to full capacity. They're all going to go like a seat or two in between everybody and they're going to let people in less and they're going to have less screenings and all that. But they are going to be making money hand over fist
1: by oh, people. There's a good chance that like the first day of you know, the first day uh, where everything is open again, it's just going to be a giant uh, street party wherever you're at. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to
0: be a uh, fat Tuesday everywhere. Mardi <laughs> Gras. <laughs> cool. Absolutely. Uh, but it's just, it's wild to think because like, for instance, star Wars, just in these first new Star Wars films, they created their own time of year. The Star Wars films all came out in November, and when they tried to release one of them in the summer, people, there's too much else out. You can't release a new Star Wars movie that isn't a direct sequel in July, but Mm. of course, we're going to make a Han Solo movie, release the damn Han Solo movie in the middle of where everybody goes to the movies, and the thing failed. So I can only see, like, people bet on you know the marvel movies bet on the fact that we can release them at any time but if we release them in april and may they're going to make triple what they would have made because there's nothing else out and that pushes everyone to just release in the normal summer times i mean this is why jurassic world did so well right you know outside of the fact that everybody loves dinosaurs jurassic world came out right when it started to dip from a marvel movie and people wanted something else big it was perfect right so is this going to change the whole release structure for big summer tent poles? Like it, it, it could easily because I mean, people, fa- oh, sorry. people learn the crowd learns, learns easily, right? The individual doesn't, but the crowds do. And the minute somebody remembers, Hey, what was I doing last year? You know, you have that muscle memory of, Oh, nothing comes out right now.
1: <laughs> no, I agree. I mean, like, there's a good chance that that could very well be the case like because i think like the i mean like the coronavirus has kind of upended everything anyway so i think that oh is that your phone
0: i it might have been i don't know it might add a little blip too, but i don't know what it was
1: but <laughs> yeah. no it's like um yeah like it's it's the the coronavirus has totally just upended everything anyway in terms of like the way that we um like i mean everyone's sort of stuck in like uh, as soon as as soon as everyone you know gets to be outside again we're gonna have to like learn how to be outside again like if you get what i mean right so like
0: as much as it took about three weeks and then this all just felt normal yeah. How weird yeah. is that and it don't mean normal isn't it is it's still devastating and existential dread and everything but it's normal devastating existential dread like getting in a car and driving every day is anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know how 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 long is it how long until things go back to like you know where the thing you were most worried about is you know whether or not you can see a good cat picture in the morning. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But no,
0: it, it's wild, and so that—that that to me, that to me is going to be exciting, in a weird way, to see how it plays out. Because you know, maybe it'll be for the better. Maybe uh, you know, maybe some of the big cinema chains will learn to do business better, or something. I don't know, but uh, it—it's um, going to be strange.
1: Partially on that end, yeah, but at the same time, I reckon it's a like now is probably a really, really good like uh, is it would be a very opportune moment to to test what big releases would be like on like streaming services because at the moment like netflix has been kind of dominant in the sense that like they kind of have their own originals which they can put out on their own terms and stuff like that but like what is like now is like a, a a really interesting time to see what would happen if like um you know the big like big um releases come out on streaming like how much that actually will affect the box office because one of the big worries of streaming services is like um the the industry is so used to you know doing like giant box office numbers in such a reliable kind of way there and like yeah just now uh, now is like yeah now is just a is a very good time to like maybe test the waters of what streaming is going to be like because like i yeah i'm no absolutely i'm I'm really dumb today i'm sorry
0: (laughs) you're not dumb at all dude this is great we didn't pre-write any of this man that's what makes this fun it's all it's all coming off the top of our heads and i that's why i like about doing shows like this and i like have meeting new people i mean like right we're, we're getting to hang out for the first time in person or in person quote-unquote this is great yeah.
1: i mean you, you support my you support my patreon as well so this is kind of like a shareholders meeting
0: exactly this is a shareholders meeting i demand more <laughs> i don't know watch but i demand more of it if this ship is gonna sink i shall die first <laughs> 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 so, uh anyway no um what was i gonna say uh what I love about this streaming thing that I think, you know, I'm looking at positive sides of this whole thing, right? Because there's tons of negatives we can look at the streaming has done this cool, incredible thing. And the internet, I said this in the grumpy old gamers thing, Bob and I did at PAX, which was one of the last big game conventions that happened before we were all locked in our houses, but I made a really good point. A lot of people get down on things like Twitch, which yeah. Twitch, there's a lot of negativity, all that negativity spawns from my view of online gaming anyway, which is one guy sitting in a room screaming at a 12 year old. That's the way that I look at, but I've started seeing Twitch turn into a thing where there's a one guy playing a game and there's people cheering them on like in an arcade when we were kids. And to me, that's so cool that we can get back to that on a global scale. So now with streaming directors have started doing this thing. Um, One of them that I actually live listened to was um, Leigh Whannell, the director and writer of The Invisible Man, did one of the first, um, he was one of the first movies in theaters to go to VOD, like, well, it was still in theaters the minute this happened. And he did a virtual watch party where he live-tweeted with people about the movie. We That's are getting so to, in- cool. We are getting to interact with the directors and writers and actors who make these things that we love on an immediate level this way. And to me, I think this is an untapped thing. I mean, I'll pay 50 bucks to go see Kevin Smith live talk before a movie of his, even if it was a movie of his I didn't like, because I just think he's a really interesting guy to listen to talk. Ye- these directors and stuff now can be a big advertising and marketing thing for these VODs. James Gunn has been doing it with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, 4. I,
1: I called that on Twitter. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah,
0: and what's crazy is he didn't even put the screenings together. Some kid tweeted, you know, like like all of us do to people that we love. He said, "Hey, I'm going to do a watch party of Guardians of the Galaxy. It'd be great if James Gunn showed up." James Gunn said, "You know what? I'll do it. Tell me where and when. What do I have to do?" And the kid couldn't believe it, so it <laughs> happened. Awesome, and then for the second one, they got um, Sean Gunn and the lady that played Mantis and a couple other people were all there. And to me, this is a whole new untapped thing that is a big positive that came out because of people trying to be more resourceful. And it's getting the artist... Again, this isn't Disney live tweeting along. This isn't the producer live tweeting along. This is the artist who was there in the trenches making the film. And again, they might be a billionaire, but they still are interacting directly with fans. And that is so goddamn cool to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's just... It is cool. I mean, like, it's such... I mean, it's it's the kind of thing that's only it's the kind of thing that's only really possible in like the social media age, you know. Like, it's created this. I, I love your I love your comparison of Twitch, by the way, to uh, you know kids around an arcade machine because that's how people can like cultivate followings. In that sense, that is what they are analogous to. Is like, oh, sorry, you just really hit the nail on the head there with that with that analogy. But that's kind of like it's. We're finding. uh, No, like, um, I I love the whole thing. Like, I, I like the idea of the kind of live commentaries, almost like uh, evolution of the director's commentary, but then now they're just interactable with but social they
0: media. Can it, they can do it stream of consciousness, which means they have a crowd to, they have a crowd to go off of, kind of like, doing a, um, you know, a live talk or even just doing an, a stream of consciousness podcast like this, right? You have someone to bounce ideas off of to keep it interesting. You can't even do that in a crowded theater with people in front of you, right? Because you can't hear the guy in the back, but you can see a tweet come in and you can answer it. And that to me, I know Disney had had this idea and AMC had had this idea for a little while where they were going to do like tweetable films and everybody flipped out. But I could, but this, this is a way to do it without your tap tap tappy tappy tapping bothering the person next to you that just wants to watch the movie it's brilliant it it, to me is it's the same level of brilliance in a different way as like technology that just isn't quite there and ready yet sony tried to do this thing with 3d stereoscopic technology they made a tv i don't know if you remember this
1: um no they made it
0: please tell me it's a tv it died quickly because it was too niche Cause it was like only for like make for, for playstations. Oh, um,
1: so yeah. 3d TV. Yeah. Okay. But you wore the
0: glasses and one goes to the one half of the stereoscopic. The other one goes to the other half and you can get a full view of your player on the screen. So you could play like Mario Kart two player, but not have to have it be split screen. And to me, that's something cool. And that's something that's allowable with something like, you know, online call of duty and all of that. It's an, it's an, an iteration of that. Right. But back to the Twitch thing and, ma- and you know, maybe Twitch is a cool way for directors to do these, like, you know, like talk alongs or whatever with their movies, but it just, I equate it to a thousand arcade cabinets and a bunch of kids standing around and a whole crowd gathers because the kid at the other end is about to get the high score on double dragon. so everyone comes and crowds around. And to me, that's exciting and if we can feel that level of excitement in a digital world without having to you know go outside right now and put ourselves in danger that's a positive and i hope we stick with it uh, a friend of mine um i don't have a ps4 so i can't play the final fantasy 7 remake so i plan to look through someone's let's play of it at some point because that was one of my favorite games ever made he live streamed it and goes chris come on you have to see this thing and we both like balled our eyes out of out of how beautiful it was while he was playing it and i'm like this is such a great connection right that yeah. i'm having right now and it, it it only i mean i mean i'm busy i have a wife and kids there's no way i could make time to go sit over at my buddy's house and watch him play final fantasy 7 but i can log in for 20 minutes at midnight and do it you know yeah
1: us millennials it turns out we're pretty good after all
0: <laughs> exactly you, you
1: bastards your best. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what does the, the uh, what, what does everybody say? The um, okay, boomer. M- my favorite one was ten four okay. dinosaur. Hey, I like ten four <laughs> dinosaur. That's even better. That's <laughs> awesome. So you know, God man, I'm having so much fun. I was gonna say, um, you know, obviously you're you're gonna do your own shows and talk about people's oh. questions, but I was just wondering, oh. you know, what's your what for you has been the some of your favorite things you've done. On so much for pathos so far.
1: Um. Oh God. Um. There's been like a bunch of stuff. I uh, I a lot of the early stuff that we did isn't very good. But like, there's. Oh, although, to, although to be to be quite honest, like, um, me having the kind of brain that I have, I never think anything I'm working on is particularly good. <laughs> like you've just got to be the best. You just got. You just got to be the best available you that day. Um. But like. The stuff I've really enjoyed has been, I I really really liked uh, working on Watchmen. With oh Sam. yeah, that, that was a hell, I of really episodes. Really that. hell of an episode. <laughs> I really like that as well. It was just one of those things where, like, um, we'd been kind of me and Sam had been kind of building up to to doing that because we thought like, um when we were working on season one, the whole idea was like, we want, we we're kind of working towards some kind of big project, whatever that was going to end up being. But the idea was like, we would do some kind of like really big topic and do like a big comprehensive essay. And we eventually decided on Watchmen and we decided that like part one had to be this like super like um, comprehensive and analytical piece about like exactly why, watchmen is so perfectly brilliant at just oh god um i love i loved working on that so much like um and uh and so the idea was the idea of like doing watchmen was going to be like part one was going to be this giant kind of uh like essay talking about like postmodernism and about like the role of the superhero in this kind of scary landscape like in other words like what 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 me and Sam agreed on, we were going to, what we wanted to do was we wanted to take, excuse me, we wanted to take Watchmen off of its kind of pop culture pedestal and put it back into history. Like, because um, I feel like art, when art becomes iconified in that way, it kind of becomes it ends up being kind of like a, a a mausoleum piece. Do you know what I mean? And yep. it becomes kind of like a little bit too sacred, a little bit too, do you know what I mean? Where everyone thinks of it in a very specific way. Whereas what we wanted to do was to kind of like, to be a little bit deconstructionist and kind of say, okay, just like, t- 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 let's put to one side the fact that Watchmen, like Star Wars or Nirvana, are these kind of giant franchises w- where... You know, you can just make, re-release them every five years and make a whole bunch of money. Here's why this mattered in the time and place that it did. Here's what it was doing and how it was, you know, trying to get there. Um, which is actually quite similar to what, uh, what your brother did with Star Wars, which incidentally, I That's... love that video he did on Star Wars. Um, I really, really love. Uh, also, I just I love Bob's work. Um, just generally Um, but his Star Wars video is particularly good Um, is to do something like that with Watchmen and then so the idea was part one was going to be that kind of giant essay and then part two is kind of like okay so here's the movie Um, like a (laughs) a regular old episode of so much pathos because the reason why I, I, I in particular wanted to do it is because I have a lot of like big thoughts about the movie and the only way i can properly express those thoughts is by talking about the comic so we decided that the comic part should just be its own episode like a giant much longer episode than the actual movie episode um but i i love working on that in particular
0: yeah it was it was a great one man
1: <laughs> it's Thank that you. watchman
0: has created so much great output from people good or bad be- that, that, that have a, a positive or a negative reaction to it i remember seeing that movie at midnight with my brother and just being like this is he it, it's just so brilliant and this is why i can never fully write off Zack snyder because he's made a couple of movies that i just hold as Holy brilliant! And I don't think that that was a mistake. I just think that he is unsuited for some of the material he's kind of been pushed into or has jumped on. But that's a different issue in and of itself. A question for you: Have you seen the HBO Watchmen show yet?
1: I I still haven't seen it, and I've been tempted to watch it. But every um, but I basically I gauged I gauged a Twitter like uh like a Twitter. Reactions and the the general consensus on the show basically seems to be, oh, hey, this is quite. Oh, never mind.
0: Oh no, I don't want to try to oversell it, but it it moved me. Oh, really? Yeah, it is. It's hearing the way that you just talked about the approach that you wanted to try to give to Watchmen, where where you said to deconstruct it and put it in the time period it came in and remember why it's important and less necessarily yeah. That's exactly what this show did. Whether you think it's successful or not, depends on 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 your take because it's there's a lot of people that genuinely didn't like it that had reasons that were arguable and there's a whole lot of people that didn't like it because they come from a particular contingent of the united states that felt that they were being pointed at and they didn't like that very much um but it is really well done i cannot believe that it was made by the lost guy (laughs) not not, not to say not to say that he's a very good creator i just have not seen him stick a landing on anything he has made and watchmen even in general watchmen in and of itself has a hard time sticking its own landing as far as how many big ideas it has this kind of does the same thing but man where they end up with is so brilliant and i love when you see it i love the fact that because it's Damon Lindelof and I love the fact that he came out and said, you know what? I'm happy with where I ended it. And HBO's like, but people want more. And he's like, I'm sorry. You know, if you want to make more, that's fine. And HBO has stood up and said, you know what? Until Lindelof says he wants to do more, we're done. And I See, find well, that I, I, I respect that actually. Like I, I, it, it ends in a perfect place where it closes its story out, but it also opens up this whole new world at the same time it'd be like if west world season one just didn't have any more it'd be one of those things where you'd be like wait a minute yeah you, you i want I, okay i guess i'm happy he did the same thing where it's it's nicely packaged up but still could go so much bigger and and if you didn't know by the trailers jeremy irons is in it Guess who yeah. they cast
1: Jeremy Irons as? Yeah, he's playing Ozymandias. And it's he,
0: he is having more fun than I have ever seen him have in a role as Ozymandias.
1: I mean, it's kind of perfect casting, really. You know, like it, I can it, just, it, I mean, I know that character really well. And I'm like, I'm a fan retur- of Jeremy
0: Irons. It's so the, the only, return, it. only returning character I will acknowledge that's actually in it because they oh, do cool. a really good job. They do a really good job. I don't want to blow it because they. There are more, but I'm not going to tell you how and where and why. But they do all this. Right, great, they do a great job of spending many episodes, not at all tying anything from the comic in. They try to build this whole new world, and they do such a good job with it. it, it it's really well done, in my, in my opinion.
1: Well, I mean, it, it certainly piqued my interest. Um, but, like, I, I don't know. It's. Um, I'm tempted to check it out now after you having said that, but I like, I don't know. I, I've kind of, I mean, at the, um, me I think me and Sam at the end of the at part two made our stance on most things post uh, Watchmen, the comic kind of clear, which is yeah. that like, um, which is that like, it's, 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 it's really hard to, I mean, keep in mind, this is me not having seen the show yet, but like, right. it's really hard for some, for Watchmen to be meaningful now um, versus like what it meant when it initially landed, in as much as like, uh, like the comparison we made was to Nirvana. Like, Watchmen has kind of become Nirvana, in as much as the continued uh, mimetic repetition of their meaning has rendered both kind of like, like a franchise that's kind of divorced from its time and place that said i am there is a part of me that is kind of interested in what you just described it i am kind of interested in that you know now
0: i'll just say there are two or three times
1: where it's just jaw dropping what
0: they are able to do in this show and i i mean that from a i saw the trailers for it and went no fucking way i'm seeing that like, the trailers sold it as something that doesn't get Watchmen. And the show they made gets Watchmen. To a degree... It, 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 this would be like if they... If the Star Wars The Force Awakens had been... Like, they advertised it the way they did, and then the movie they gave you
1: was both... It's like a deliberate
0: by switch. Yeah, or the movie they gave you was something that completely went against. Like, if The Force Awakens had been The Last Jedi, was well, just like if they had let off. Oh, not. wow. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they just, like, hey, <laughs> hey, guess what? <laughs> we're going to completely recon deconstruct, but also completely write a love letter to everything you love about this, and just stick with us because you're gonna sk- you're gonna see what we're trying to do. The Watchmen show was kind of the same way where it went, hey. You love The Watchmen, right? So do we. But guess what? It's not un- it's not unfallible and it's not untouchable. And if that actually happened, what would the world X amount of years in the future really look like? And you're just like, Jesus Christ. And they also do some stuff to completely reboot the way characters were portrayed and viewed in the original book without betraying them as characters like you know like when you find out more about Darth Vader it makes Darth Vader less interesting completely opposite of what they did here you just go holy shit really like that's where you decided to go my god (laughs) you know like, like remember when Zack Snyder in the opening credits of Watchmen made the comedian be the guy that shot JFK And that (laughs) one little instance was just so brilliant and they didn't have to speak on it again. You just go, yes, that makes complete sense. That kind of stuff where you just go, wow, like you really get this book. Okay. (laughs) That kind of stuff. And I I don't want to blow anything about it, but I I highly recommend it. And I'm not going to say, I'm not recommending it and saying that you might, you might just hate it. I have no idea, but I was completely won over by it.
1: Cool, oh, man. I mean, like it. Like I said, it's it's definitely piqued my interest. It's just a case of like time. Um, I don't know. It's kind of like I think it's um because I, I don't want to like negate anything you said, but like it's for me, it's 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 a simple thing of like I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, it's just um. All right. I'll, go, I'll 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 I will consider watching it. Cool.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say we. We, we have been going, we, we obviously could talk for days, which um, I would gladly do again. And I'd love to have you back on, but I also need to get back to work. I wanted to give you a chance again to plug your stuff or anything else that you want the world to hear about or know about and invite you to come back on anytime. So just let me know. And also say that if there's ever a topic where you were looking for a collaborator, I would love to, um, I, I'm after helping Bob with the big picture, my interest in doing saying someone else's words or collaborating with someone on words, because I'm not a pre planner.
1: You've, you've been doing what, a marvelous job of that, by the way. I'm not a pre
0: planner or a writer. I don't have the mastery of that, that my brother does, but I'm a damn good collaborator. And so if there's ever a thing where you needed someone else's voice or just were looking for, working i would love to be a part of something you don't have to say yes or no now i'm just letting you know because i'm a huge fan of what you do
1: um thank you very much
0: so so tell the world about um oh and also in telling the world about your stuff where'd you get the name so much for pathos there we go that's a good question uh
1: well where that comes from is um it was, so basically, the the idea of the name came from like it's kind of like a really dorky in joke between me and Sam, which is firstly okay. it's firstly it's a Monty Python joke. Yes, it is. That's what I thought. I just wanted I didn't want to just assume. <laughs> it, it is. It's a Monty Python joke. There's a there's a classic skit where um it's a, a marriage counselor skit where at the end, uh, it, at at the end of the skit it comes to an anticlimax and someone's hit over the head with a chicken and there's a little. Yep look card at the end it says so much for pathos mm-hmm. um it's it, the name is also because when me and sam were starting the channel we wanted something that was like we we rec- like originally the idea of the show was going to be like way more in line with what like um nostalgia critic and mm-hmm. other folks were doing where we review negative content so the joke was you know so much for pathos um but mm-hmm um that was the initial idea and then we started to evolve the show into kind of more essay analytical content so the answer i typically give is well it's about looking into why there's so much for pathos but it's such a dorky answer ah, um, like that's fine that's good why why is there so much so much effort for pathos
0: cool i like it
1: um, um, but the, but the truth at the end of the day is it's it's a Monty Python joke. Um, you can find uh, so much for pathos at uh, the house that Jack built YouTube channel, which is I actually have like a specific URL. But uh, yes, yeah. so if you go to YouTube.com forward slash c slash the house that Jack built, you can find all of our content there, and you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Matt J Crowley. Um, and just know
0: that is not the Lars von Trier film, the House no. of the Jack film. But if that's you a, want to equate Matt Crowley with it, if you liked it, then yes, <laughs> that's also <laughs> a match.
1: <laughs> well, I, mean, I still haven't seen that yet, but it just yeah. that—that's one of those movies where, again, it's a lot like the a Joker, where every time I look at it, I go, "Good lord, this looks so insufferable." Because it's, von Trier it's totally burnt me out on the yeah. Nymphomaniac.
0: It's even more insufferable than you think. I'll just say that.
1: (laughs) Oh God. Mighty Lars. Just see a
0: therapist, please. It it almost seems like it's an in-joke. It's so insufferable. Like it almost seems like he's he's doing like the what if Quentin Tarantino directed a movie just called Feet? You know what (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) mean? It's like because it, it literally is like if if Honest Trailers made a trailer of a Lars von Trier film, it would be The House That Jack Built. <laughs> like that's
1: like I'm Lars was one of those uh, filmmakers I had like a lot of like respect for and stuff like that because he was a guy who's kind of like Stephen King actually talking very openly and kind of intelligently about his own kind of like mental <laughs> problems and like I mean there's there are sophisticated and unsophisticated like conversations about um his his recent output including things like anti-antichrist which like about whether or not you would say that the movie is misogynistic or is indeed a commentary on misogyny and you know stuff like that right but the thing about his his very recent output and and i'm including I'm including, like, the reason why I was burnt out on Nymphomaniac, both part one and part two, is because it ultimately feels kind of like indulgence in terms of, like, I'm kind of swallowing in my kind of mental health problems and sadness and just, you know, like, it makes me more real as an artist. At least that's the vibe I definitely get off of that movie, which is a shame because I really, really, really love Melancholia. I think that movie is so beautiful and it's so just remarkably uh, like that touching not- when it comes to talking about mental health
0: the man it's is
1: cap- just, I love, I love, yeah I'm
0: oh, the, no, the man is capable of masterpiece and that's it, it's the same way I feel about um, Quentin Tarantino with The Hateful Eight where I watch it and go you're obviously a master of what you're making here this is obviously a well-written and well-acted film and I hate it I don't want to watch
1: it anymore please stop <laughs> you know <laughs> Well the thing with The Hateful Eight is like there's there's a lot of really interesting conversations um regarding that movie in particular, specifically regarding the ending. Because like yeah. okay, spoilers for the Hateful Eight, by the way. Um yes. there's there's a lot of interesting conversation about though about what it's going for thematically, but about what the ending kind of ends up being. Because like okay, so like what the movie what the hateful eight is dealing with is it's about it's about kind of the consequences of like racism America right after like you know the civil war and um and it's meant to be a kind of a last hurrah for you know the bad guy is lost and you know that kind of thing but what it ends up but it's one of those things where Quentin clearly hasn't thought through exactly what the implications of that ending could mean and i don't mean in terms of like the racial politics of it i mean in terms of like the gender politics of it because you could either read that movie as uh, a kind of a revenge as like a brilliantly crafted revenge against uh, bigotry or you can look at it as very elaborately justified misogyny
0: yes and that that that's exactly where my problem comes with it and both of those things are in a movie that I just didn't enjoy. And I don't mean that I have to be able to enjoy a movie. It's that, like...
1: No, I know, because what it's doing is it's trying to be very spiteful and ugly because that's what, you know, those kinds of tensions are. But he writes
0: characters that are usually, like, there's never a good character in a Quentin Tarantino movie, right? There's always some sort of some sort of embellishment or racism or awfulness or, you know, or in the case of like once upon a time in Hollywood, I may or may not have killed my wife, you know, all of this <laughs> stuff. And, and, but to me, like there's charisma to a lot of them that you end up falling in love with these awful, shitty human beings and everyone in the hateful eight, even though they're all actors that I love, I just looked at all of them and I went, the writer of this movie is trying to make you it's trying to cut me deep with all of these people. It's like the movie is taking revenge on you for wanting to enjoy it. And I, <laughs> I and, 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 and uh, that bothers me. And I know it comes from a place of he was very angry at the reception, like the script getting leaked and all that. I get it, but I've never watched a film of his that I don't just love watching. And The Hateful Eight, I sat there and I'm just like, when is this fucking thing going to end? Like it's just insufferable to get through, and then you're right. You get to that final moment, and the final moment, I just I couldn't get past the justified misogyny part of it. That's what really got me.
1: It's one of those things where, like, you definitely get what he's going for in terms of like, oh, it's meant to be like the final revenge against uh, bigotry and racism. But it's one of those things where clearly Quentin hasn't thought about the implications of having that character of it being that like the 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 revenge, the reven- the, shul- the character shouldering the the revenge being her, like he clearly hasn't thought that through. If you get what if you get what well, I mean, right. it, for example, Django
0: Unchained does the power fantasy superhero version of that with its ending, where oh, Django yeah, just, yeah, becomes, totally, yeah. so just becomes superhuman and blasts away slavery in one fell swoop, and I love that about it, even though there's some horrible things to get through in that movie DiCaprio is a vile fucking character and I love his character in that movie Do you know what I mean and that's why it's like it's like a room full of like the your worst hillbilly uncle you know <laughs> talking about talking about you know what they talked about at their Rotary Club meeting earlier that day for two hours and I'm just like no I don't want this <laughs> I don't know. But hey, we, we, we just like Return of the King ended the podcast and started it back up with another point there. So so I'm going to say yes. thank you so much, Matt, for shooting the shit with me today. And I really do mean you can come back on anytime you want. Just let me know. Um, yeah, know obviously, you're. Absolutely, dude. Thank you very much for shooting the shit with me. Thank you all for listening. And we'll be back again soon. Bye.